we admit that Peter is one of us. And so often our view of life, our view of of even your kingdom is controlled by the world around us, by our own desires. So would you intrude on that tonight? Would you disturb what needs disturbed? Would you comfort where we need comfort? Would you open us to receive your word, to be shaped by it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what are we doing here tonight? You ever stopped to think about that? I know a lot of you have grown up around the church or you've been a part of the church for a while. And, and sometimes that means that we, we lose the strangeness of what we're doing. This uh, group of people that gets together to sing some songs and, and read a book and talk about it and then go home. What's that about? What is the church? Who are we? Maybe you're here tonight and, and you haven't grown up around the church and it's so refreshing to have you here because it makes us stop and ask that question. What are we doing here? Who are we? What, what is the church? Are we just an institution that exists to preserve a way of life that is fading in our modern world? Are we a community of people who thinks similarly, has similar tastes, and so we get together so that we can be around people like us, so that we can have relationships, find a date even? Or are we just a bunch of weird hobbyists who like to sing in public? What is the church? Who, who are we? Matthew 16 is one of those crystallizing moments in the Bible, and particularly in the ministry of Jesus and in his relationship with his disciples, which is his relationship with us. It's it's one of those moments when we listen in on a defining conversation. This interaction that Jesus has with Peter and his disciples about the church. And so I want to bring that question, those, that set of questions. Who are we? What are we doing here? What, what should we be about in the world, in our life uh, together as a church? I want to bring those questions to this defining conversation that Jesus has with Peter. And what we find there is that we need to, we need to expand the question. Because the problem with all of those proposals I laid out before, a social institution, a social gathering, just a group of hobbyists, the problem with all of those is that they leave out Jesus. And so we need to first of all ask, who is Jesus? And then because of who Jesus is, who are we? Okay, so first of all, who, who is Jesus? Reading Matthew's Gospel is like watching a movie where the camera gives us information that it doesn't give to the characters in the story. 
So if you've been reading along with us, or if you have read this gospel, what Peter says when he says you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is not surprising at all. The way that Matthew has told the story has made it very clear that Jesus is this leader who was promised by the Old Testament. Uh, This one sent from God who would bring the life of heaven on earth who would connect the throne of heaven to a rebellious creation, to renew that creation, to put together what had been broken, to mend what had been ruined. Matthew has made it very clear that Jesus is that person, this one that the Old Testament called the Messiah. We know that, but you have to remember, this has been a process for these men that have been walking with Jesus. That that was not immediately obvious to them, and they've gotten hints here and there. And so it is a momentous when Peter steps up as a spokesman of this group and finally says, All right, we've got it. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And you can see this in the way that Jesus draws out the difference between what the culture thinks about him and what the disciples have come to think about him. So so understand the context. We're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, This is a predominantly non-Jewish area. It's a Roman city. You can see that in the name, Caesar. And uh, historians tell us that this city had at least 15 different temples. 15 different religious centers that you could choose from to meet your spiritual needs. And this was a city that was devoted, most importantly, not to a religion per se, but more to a political view, which is really just religious. They, in reality, worshipped Rome. The power of Rome. And remember what Jesus has been doing. He's been doing all of these miraculous things. These healings, casting out demons. All of these incredible signs that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the crowds have seen this and they're attracted to it. But they think He's a prophet. Like Peter says. They think He's maybe the... Second coming of Elijah or Jeremiah or even John the Baptist. So they they think maybe he has something for them, but he's just one of the prophets. And then remember the religious leaders as they, as they have seen Jesus do this and more as they have heard him teach about the kingdom of heaven. They have increasingly come to the view uh, that he's not a legitimate prophet. He is a, he's a rogue rabbi who needs to be censored. He needs to be shut down. Or he's going to create problems for them. So, for the Romans, Jesus would have been irrelevant. Possibly a minor terrorist threat. For the leaders, he was dangerous. For the crowds, he was just a prophet a curiosity who had the potential to help them 
in their lives. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is saying, you're all wrong. You've all missed it. Jesus is not irrelevant. He is a king whose authority undermines every other authority on earth, including Caesar's. He is not only a teacher and interpreter of God's law, he is the law giver. He is not only a prophet, he is the prophet's dream. He is this one whom the prophets dreamed about anticipated the one who would come from God, anointed by God, sent by God to make everything right, to overcome injustice and establish God's kingdom on the earth. And this is a conclusion not based on rationality, as Jesus notes in verse 17. This is a conclusion that comes from God Himself. Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It came from my Father who is in heaven. Now, why? Why this emphasis on making sure that these people and, and the disciples understand that Jesus is not a teacher... He's not just an interesting religious figure, but he is indeed the prophet. He are indeed the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He is the one whom the prophets anticipated. Why this emphasis? Why is Jesus drawing out this contrast between the culture and Peter's confession? Well, if you follow the passage, you realize that Jesus is preparing his disciples for something. He is in some ways setting them up. And you can see this in the contrast between Peter in verses 16 and 17 and Peter in verses 22 and 23. So verses 16 and 17, here's Peter with his confident confession. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, good for you. Blessed are you. You're right. God has taught you this. And because of it, you are going to be the foundation of my church. And then verses 22 and 23, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm headed towards Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, I will suffer and I will die and then I will rise again. And Peter sings a different tune, doesn't he? Jesus, stop. We need to have a PR discussion here. Uh, We need to talk about it. You cannot say things like that. No way. Messiahs don't die. Stop talking like this. And what is Jesus' response? Well, the one who was the foundation of the church is now the enemy of the church. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Why this difference of Peter and what he says and how Jesus responds to him? Well, it's because Peter... And the disciples, they want Jesus to be the Messiah, but they want to get to define that term. They want Him to be the Messiah, but they want Him to be the Messiah in their perspective, in their image. 
They want Him to be the Messiah as they think about the Messiah. They want to define Christ rather than Jesus' definition of what that word means, of what it means to be Christ. They wanted Him to be a Messiah, but they did not want Him to be a Messiah who would suffer and die an embarrassing death on a cross. And Jesus is training them here. And He's training us to understand that He is Christ in the way that God says that He is Christ, not in the way that we say He is Christ. He is Christ by His definition, not our definition. Some of you have or have played games on the Wii game console. And you know when you, when you log into that, it, it asks you to create an avatar for yourself, right? And you can pick all of these different options, tall or short, skinny or fat, uh, beard, no beard, glasses, no glasses, afro, bald, whatever else that you want to make your avatar look like. And I think... That's often the way that we approach Jesus. And it is certainly the way our culture tends to approach Jesus. We want a list of options that we can pick from. We want a Jesus who is conservative like we are. Or we want a Jesus who is liberal like we are. We want a Jesus who may give us advice, but demands nothing of us. We want a Jesus who confirms our biases, who affirms our preferences, but does not meddle with them. And I understand that desire. There's something attractive about that of a Savior who does exactly what you want Him to do, who is exactly the way that you want Him, or is the way you want Him to be. But you have to understand, when you approach Jesus that way, all you've done is create an avatar. And that avatar often looks remarkably like you. And you have to understand that an avatar never saved anybody. The church must begin and end in an open posture towards the revelation of heaven. We must begin and end as a receptive community. As a group of people who receives a definition rather than creating it. We are a confessing community, which means we don't define Jesus, we don't define Messiah, we receive His definition And what a glorious definition it is. A king who gives himself for us. A king who does not only demand our allegiance, but enters the world and takes our curse so that we can receive the blessing and life of God. But if we try to define Messiah for ourselves, 
that's not what we'll come up with. So we must start as a church, our beginning place and our ending place is an openness to what Jesus has said about Himself and a willingness to give ourselves to that even when it crosses us. Even when it offends us. So that's who Jesus is. Now, because of that, who are we? If Jesus is this Messiah, the dying and rising sent one from God, what does that mean for us? Who are we because of that? Well, notice that there are two namings in this passage. Jesus, or Peter, first of all, names Jesus. And it's, of course, of course, a name that he gets from God himself. And he names him Christ. And then what does Jesus do in response? He turns around and names Peter. Simon was his birth name, and now he calls him Peter, uh, which means rock. And in defining Peter, what I want us to see is that in defining Peter, Jesus defines us. He says who we are. And in this definition, there are, there are two images. And the first image is the image of a building. Okay, so Peter says you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says that's wonderful. You are Peter. You're a rock And I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my building on that foundation. There's a lot of controversy here uh, about this passage. And and is Jesus talking about Peter? Is he talking about his confession? And yes, he's talking about both. Jesus builds his church on the foundation of Peter And then he extends this description, as we'll see in chapter 18, to all of these disciples. He does found his church on these men. Go and read the book of Acts. Right? How is the church built? Peter preaches a sermon. And that's the beginning. These men are the beginning, the foundation of this building that Jesus is putting together. And in fact, Peter, when he writes a letter to the church later in the New Testament, calls us, those of us who have believed in Jesus, he says that we are living stones who are added to this foundation that Peter and these other early early leaders laid. Or rather that Jesus laid through them. And notice how Jesus emphasizes the stability, the safety, and the success of this building that he is putting together. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word for hell there is the word for Hades, which is the place of death for the Greeks. Uh, it corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol in the Old Testament. It is a place of death. And in the Old Testament, this place of death is imagined as a mouth with the gate and opening that swallowed people up. And so Jesus says death will not swallow this building that I am putting together. Which is remarkable because remember what Jesus or what Peter says about Jesus. He says you are the son of the living God. And Jesus is the Messiah who not only dies, 
but is raised from the dead. Death will not swallow this building. And more than that, this place of death is associated with Satan, with a rebellion against God. And Jesus ensures the success of His agenda against the agenda of darkness. And He says, this building will not fall. The foundation is sure. It will not be swallowed up. My agenda will succeed. Now, what is that agenda? What is Jesus' purpose for this building that He is putting together? Verse 19, a second image He introduces. He tells Peter that He is going to give him the keys of the kingdom. And we'll talk more specifically in chapter 18 about this binding and loosing that Jesus talks about. He explains it there in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation. But the image here is the image of a steward. So in the ancient world, a king or a very wealthy person would have an official in their house. And this official would be an extremely important person. And this official would have keys. And those keys would unlock a room in the house. And that room contained all of the wealth of this king. Or all of the wealth of this very rich person. And so the steward was the person, when it was time to pay the bills, or when it was time uh, to give a gift, he is the one who would walk, who would unlock the treasure room and bring out the treasure to the person that needed it, or the person who the king had directed to receive it. And in fact, the language here echoes Isaiah 22, where the prophet talks about an important steward in the history of Israel. His name was Eliakim. He was steward to King Hezekiah. And unfortunately, Eliakim had to unlock the treasure room of King Hezekiah and the nation of Israel in order to pay off their enemies in order to stop the Assyrians from coming in and destroying them. And Isaiah imagines a time when God will renew His people and Eliakim will no longer have to unlock the storehouse of the kingdom of God to pay off the enemies of God's people, but would unlock that treasure room to benefit all of those who belong to God. You see what Jesus is saying? To Peter, and because we are built on the foundation of Peter, do you see what he is saying to us? He is saying, that is you. You are the steward of the kingdom of heaven. All of the riches and the life that come from God and knowing Him come through you. Church, through you, Christian, through you, center point, you are the connection of heaven's treasure to the world. And that's why we're here. That's why we are, that's why we exist. We exist because we have been given a treasure the gospel, the message about Jesus. 
And we exist because as we worship and pray and care for one another and talk about the gospel and its implications for for our lives, as we do that, we open the door of the storehouse of heaven. And the riches of God spill into our lives and into our world. The church confessing and celebrating the gospel is God's plan to bring His life into the world. Two implications of that. First of all, you should hear that as a call into the life of the church. You should understand that Jesus is saying, this is my plan. Jesus' plan is not you and him. It is us and him. When he decided to unleash his kingdom on the world, he did not send individuals, he sent a community. And so understand that for you to follow Jesus, for you to belong to Him, is to belong to that community, that stewarding community whose mission it is to bring heaven's life into the world. And it's not that that community is perfect. It's not that that community meets every need that you have. But it is that that community is God's plan. It is His work. It is the way that He does His work in the world. And listen, this is not not a sales pitch for Centerpoint Church. Okay? There are plenty of faithful gospel congregations in our city. Find one and give yourself to it. That is what Jesus is calling you to. Second implication. First implication, hear this as a call into the life of the church. Second implication, hear this as a call out of the church. And by that I mean, if we are going to be stewards of the kingdom of heaven in Tallahassee, Florida, you cannot... Only have your relationships here in this room. If we are going to be a steward of God's life into our world, we have to be in relationships with people who need to hear about the riches of God's grace, who need to see the power of the gospel at work in our lives. Do not limit your relationships to people who name the name of Jesus? Would you open your life, your home, your family, your friendships to people who are impoverished by sin and need to know the riches of God's grace? If we are going to be a stewarding community, which is what Jesus calls us to, we've got to be a people who are committed to that. Who are committed to those sometimes difficult relationships where we bear witness 
to the grace that we have been shown. Who are we? Well, the church is like a community of inept pirates. We have a treasure that we did not find. It is a treasure that found us. And we have a treasure that we cannot keep to ourselves. But we must lose control of it. So that it fills our lives. So that it fills relationships. So that it fills our city and our world. Will, will you join us? Let's pray.